Hello, everyone. I'm Hans-Peter Kiem, president of the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy. Before we get started with our podcast, I wanted to take a moment to encourage all our listeners to consider registering for our annual ASGCT meeting. The annual meeting runs from May 16 to 20 at the Los Angeles Convention Center. But virtual attendance is available, and you can see every presentation from anywhere in the world. ASGCT's annual meeting is a truly fantastic place to learn from experts, connect with your peers, and share your science. The meeting covers everything from basic science to clinical trials, and more than 1,700 new pieces of research will be presented throughout the event in sessions and in our poster hall. You can learn more and register online at annualmeeting.asgct.org. Now let's get started with our podcast. Hello, and welcome to Giants of Gene Therapy. My guest today is another true giant in our field. He was the first to use the adeno-associated virus, or AAV, to deliver gene therapy to target sites in the body. Welcome, Dr. Flock. Dr. Flock is the provost, dean, and Celia and Isaac Heideck professor at UMass Chan Medical School with faculty appointments in the Department of Pediatrics and the Horay Gene Therapy Center. He's been at UMass since 2007. Dr. Flott is also a practicing pediatric pulmonologist and a prolific researcher who has authored more than 280 manuscripts and been the principal investigator of multiple clinical gene therapy trials. He's also the editor-in-chief of Human Gene Therapy, the oldest gene therapy journal. He's currently investigating the use of gene therapy for genetic diseases that affect children, including alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency and lysosomal storage diseases. Dr. Flott has been an ASGCT member since the society's beginning in 1996. He served on the board and committees and spoken at the ASGCT annual meeting and other events. Again, welcome Dr. Flott, and let's get started from the beginning. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and about your family. Well, thank you so much, Hans Peter. It's it's such an honor to be included in this podcast series, and I I do appreciate uh, your leadership uh, of ASGCT. So, uh, and I'm a little humbled to be telling you all of my story, but uh, I will start at the beginning. So, I my family's from New Orleans. I was born and raised in Louisiana. My family's actually been in Louisiana for eight generations. And we're not a very medical or scientific oriented family, but growing up, I would say I was both very intrigued with science and I was also very much admired my own pediatrician, a guy by the name of Thomas Garvey. So I would say he was my first and most prominent physician role model as I grew up and went through school. And, you know, my time in New Orleans, I stayed there. When I I went to college, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, so I went to the to the public university that was in New Orleans, a large public university, University of New Orleans, and then I went to medical school there at the public medical school, uh, Louisiana State University, LSU. And so, um, as I went through, my aspiration was generally to be a pediatrician, but when it came time to finish up medical school and go in for the match, I. I had done really well uh, academically and, and thought I would go to see what it was about in some of the more prestigious academic institutions, which is which is how I, I landed at Johns Hopkins uh, in the match. 
Okay. Do you have any brothers and sisters? Yeah. So I have two brothers and two sisters. I have uh, a brother who's an engineer and a brother who is a lawyer, uh, which is what my my father was. He, he passed away. My father passed away when I was young. But I think uh, the default in our family was probably to be uh, to be a lawyer. But uh, at a certain point in time, I really felt like I, I wanted to have a, what I felt to be a more direct impact on human outcomes and on people, and also uh, definitely was uh, was intrigued by science. So, so when was that at that time? You know, when when as far as you can remember, when do you think you kind of decided, okay, I'm going to do medical school? Well, uh, it's an interesting question. So actually. Uh, Often great opportunities are born out of uh, difficult circumstances. So actually, the thing that really made up my mind was um, my father uh, had a sudden cardiac uh, event, which he passed away from when I was a teenager, when I was 14. And uh, it really created a a sense in me that uh, medicine had to do better uh, so that we didn't have uh, as many tragic outcomes for people. I, I just felt like this was something that we needed to to all uh, all fight for uh, people to be healthier, live longer, and not, not have these uh, kinds of uh, tragedies befall families. So that was yeah. really the turning point. I was 14 at the time. Wow. Wow. And then you decided to go to Johns Hopkins. Yes. Yeah, so that was, a, that was another real turning point for me. So it was my top choice. I matched for residency at Johns Hopkins. I was inspired uh, by really its alignment of, of clinical excellence with academic excellence, as, as some of our, our best medical schools and hospitals are. And uh, I had determined to go into pediatrics, thought I might do a subspecialty, but I wasn't exactly sure what I would do. And uh, the chair there at the time that I uh, started was a guy by the name of Frank Oski, uh, who was prominent uh, a pediatric hematologist, who was a terrific teacher. And as I went along in my residency, I was exposed uh, to many other physician scientists, including another LSU graduate who became chair actually at Hopkins, George Dover, who was also a pediatric hematologist. And he was uh, he was a, a terrific example because he he had an NIH funded lab to study uh, beta globin gene regulation, and then he would also uh, see sickle cell disease patients in the clinic in the same in the course of the same day. He might be in his lab in his clinic, and I hung out with him. There were there were others uh, like George who were really uh, inspirations, and then and I started to see that one could uh, be at the forefront of both science and medicine, and, and certainly the molecular biology revolution that was ongoing there, in the, that was in the 1980s. And uh, it was, as I was a resident, that was really, uh, things were really coming together at that point in time. Mm-hmm. What made you go into pediatrics? Well, you know, uh, pediatrics, as I as I said, I it was it had been my original role model had been my pediatrician. Okay, but I did consider a lot of other things, and uh, 
Uh, in the end, I, I the interaction with children and families ended up being something that I really resonated with. I, when I talk to my students now, to medical students, I, I tell them that the the experiences in in the clinical part of medical school are as much about finding out about yourself as they are about finding out about the specialties. And how does being immersed in one of these settings make you feel? I mean, this mm-hmm. is like where you belong. And for want of a more precise description, uh, it just uh, seemed from the beginning that's where I belong. Oh, this is this is so right. Yeah. Uh, and then after Johns Hopkins, Terry, where where did you go from there? Well, I ended up being, you know, so I evolved quite a bit over the time I was part of Johns Hopkins. So I started as a resident uh, in 19... 19- 86 and uh, did my, you know, residencies pretty flat out. But then I, uh, it was before there was actually a fellowship match in pediatrics. I was basically hired as a pediatric pulmonary fellow before the end of my intern year. I knew I was going to do that. Uh, Jerry Lachlan was the division chief there. And he said, well, you have a potential for a career in academia. So you need to go and learn lab research. So when I started, actually at the very beginning, when I started my fellowship time in 1989, I participated in a a program that the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation was funding, where I was able to go for three years as a special volunteer, quote unquote. In other words, I was paid as a Hopkins pulmonary fellow. And I, but I was working in the lab of a basic virologist at NIH who turned out to be my most formative scientific mentor, Barry Carter, who later became a president of ASTC, mm-hmm. uh, like yourself. And uh, uh, Barry uh, was a, is a wonderful, he's retired. He's a wonderful, curious scientist and also quite a quite an individual. He's a New Zealander, former rugby player uh, <laughs> who uh, had such a joy of of life and science. And uh, the first day I walked into his lab, I was a resident still planning my fellowship research project. He he said to me, you know, uh, cystic fibrosis that has something to do with the lungs and their sticky mucus, right? And uh, we sat down then and I I had, we had a little discussion about what I knew about CF and about chloride channels in the lung and and uh, some of the molecular basis that was just coming together. We started the project before the CFTR gene was discovered. And then uh, he, you know, I'd done a little bit of background reading, about eight or 10 papers of his on AAV. So I was like, this AAV is really interesting. Uh, So anyway, so then that was my fellowship project was to take AAV and vectorize it, if you will, and then when the CFTR gene uh, came along, uh, we we put it into the vector, and that kind of got me off on that uh, first AV2 CFTR program, correction in cells, animal models. And by the time I finished my time at NIH, we were ready to do the animal experiments, which then led to, to going to, to, to treating the first patient when I was still an assistant professor at Hopkins. Barry had left NIH and gone to be the founding executive vice president at uh, Targeted Genetics. And so, so Barry made the GMP vector and we put it in the, in the nose and lung of a 42-year-old woman with, with CF. And that was the first, um, first human use of, of, of AAV. And so here I was, I was barely uh, three years out from my uh, fellowship 
And I was the PI of the first human gene therapy trial uh, with AAB. Yep. That's, I remember point. those days very well myself when Barry you know, moved to Seattle and, and targeted genetics. Those were yeah, very uh, interesting days. So yeah, so this was 1995 and you were the PI of that uh, first study you know, to deliver, uh, to use AAV for cystic fibrosis. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, this was obviously, this was a very early start. and <laughs> It was a very early start. And of course, it was at a time when we had to go and defend the protocol. Every protocol had to be defended at the RAC, the uh, NIH uh, recounted the advisory committee. So it was some conference room up in building, uh, building one, I believe, uh, near the cafeteria, uh, <laughs> where yep. we would go and present our, our protocol. And uh, I remember one of the biggest concerns was because we were putting AAB into the respiratory tract. The, the, one of the biggest concerns was environmental shedding. So uh, we ended up to where we had to have the patient in the hospital for four days before the gene therapy and then for something like 16 days afterward. So it was like a three-week admission in isolation. And, you know, I think everybody's got, got used to, uh, all the clinicians got used to wearing PAPRs or N95s during COVID, we were having to wear the PAPR uh, every time we went in the room. And what we now realize were homeopathic doses of AAV because the manufacturing technology was not nearly as robust. Uh, I, it wasn't exactly homeopathic doses. We, we certainly were able to detect gene transfer, in the, particularly in the nose and, and, in, the, and in the lung. But it was uh, there was a lot of hysteria about the possibility that some recombinant AAV could get out there and be spread around on the subway and uh, cause some major problem. And, and, and I look back and I say, if only it was that easy to get AAV into cells, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, that was a real problem. But that was, that was just a, a snapshot of what the time was like at the time. Right. You know, I had been actually at NIH, Barry was actually on the rack when Steve Rosenberg did the first uh, human gene transfer, uh, which was the the neo gene into the tail, the tumor infiltrating yep. site. Yep. And then shortly thereafter, Mike Blaze did the did the first ADA right. skit, all that at intramural NIH. So I was able, actually, I think he he was not actually on the rack. He was on the NIH uh, Institutional Biosafety Committee that hashed out a lot of that stuff that the rack. I heavily relied on for those first intramural uh, studies. So it's a very interesting time where there was a lot of a lot of concerns that were turned out not to be the most, uh, you know, we didn't know what the what the biggest potential right. risk benefits were, but that that was a, a, a there was a lot of focus on that that end of it. Well, then of course, ASCCT um, was established uh, just a year later, 1996, and I think you were one of the first members of ASCCT as well. I think this was all a very exciting time. I, I also remember that very fondly. Now then, though, I think uh, we went through a little rougher stretch there in the late 90s, of course, with uh, Jesse Geltzinger, Geltzinger's death, uh, and then also some of the other complications uh, from patients uh, with uh, after stem cell uh, gene therapy for immunodeficiency. Maybe now go back a little bit uh, to that time, then late 90s now, how you remember that time. Well, certainly I was 
I was thrilled when uh, ASGCT came together because uh, I, like yourself, had been trained as a gene therapy scientist, and there really wasn't an academic home for gene therapy scientists. I mean, I present data at the pulmonary meetings, and uh, a lot of people uh, were interested, but it it was a, a more narrow audience, and so there wasn't as much of an opportunity to meet with other colleagues who were uh, pushing viral vectors or non-viral vectors or other technologies forward. Interestingly, there was a little mini wave of interest with you know some some investment in biotechnology. In retrospect, not as big as what we experienced in a later phase. But then, yes, as you say, things started turning to the negative uh, at a certain point in time uh, with both the, the Gelsinger uh, OTC, Adenovirus OTC vector, uh, and then with some of the uh, uh, insertional mutagenesis in the ex vivo gamma retrovirus trials in, in Europe. And, you know, I think there were a couple of things that this taught us. I mean, the first thing, particularly with the adenovirus, was that we did not have great animal models to predict exactly where the safe dose range would be. We also were pushing, well, the, we hit the limit first with dose-related toxicity to adenovirus, but we couldn't, we didn't, we couldn't really get to the right dose range to see dose-limiting toxicities uh, with in vivo gene therapy until we got the manufacturing better than you know, then we started to hit these limits. The uh, ex vivo uh, retrovirus gene therapy trials also were great learning experiences because the improved understanding about vector technology and, and what the mechanisms of insertional activation were led to better design self-inactivating LTRs and the like, which other people are more qualified to talk about than, than I am. But I think it just showed that these types of toxicities couldn't be fully predicted from any preclinical model. So by necessity, while you know the it's it's we we're not happy as a, the, that individual patients manifested the outcomes of these risks, it, it actually demonstrates the iterative nature of a field like this. You only have to get some data in patients to understand. Uh, what the nature of toxicities are. And of course, this has come to the fore more recently with AAV, where we're hitting dose limit. I was also impressed back then, you know, yes, we had these uh, deaths and uh, these um, severe side effects from the gene therapy, but it's also showed, I think, the strength of ASGCT to go back to the basic science, to really to the bench and figure out what the problem was and come up with solutions to get into the next phase of clinical trials. Um, I was actually very impressed how you know, we as a society were, were all coming together and identifying the problems and, and then coming up with solutions. Well, I mean, your, your contributions in that time were really uh, critical and certainly identifying exactly what happened uh, with, uh, with some of the uh, leukemia syndromes from insertional activation. But you're right. I think it, it showed that this was not something, this was not a set of technologies that was going to be handed off uh, to drug companies and to the clinic and then just go on its merry way. It required continual refining and learning uh, from the scientific community in order to 
inform what the next generations of therapy were going to have to look like. So now, though, since then, AAV has, I think, is again, has been very successful. Uh, yes, there have been some side effects, um, but want to want you to talk a little bit about really the successes of AAV again, uh, especially over the past, I mean, almost 10 years now. I mean, Glybera may not have been the biggest success. Now, there were other issues. Uh, but then, uh, you know, we had other uh, drugs uh, that were approved uh, here in the United States. Uh, and maybe, you know, talk a little bit about that. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, AAV, I'm certainly, because we were involved in the very early clinical translation of AAV, I, I do, you know, have this rooting interest in AAV. And I think, you know, interestingly, one of the things we discovered that really drove home uh, about AAV from the earliest clinical trials was that it was an episomal vector. Now that's actually in the textbooks and all that now, but at the time, the interest in AAV as a virus was because it integrates sites specifically in certain cell lines. Uh, it actually doesn't really do that in nature either, but at the time people thought that it did. Uh, but when we started using it in a, a proliferating epithelium in the lung, it became quite obvious, and we actually showed this in, in primates early on, that it was, it was episomal. And the logical thought, you know, you'll go back to when most of the field was working with retroviruses, the, the prior thought had been, you're only going to get gene transfer in, not in, uh, in dividing cells because for uh, gamma retroviruses to get access uh, to the nucleus, the cells have to go through mitosis. That turned out that was not the case for AAV. And because proliferating cells lost the episomal AAV, that whole thought process shifted the hammer of AAV gene therapy toward the nail of non-dividing cells, right? In other words, we, we didn't really, uh, uh, we, while there was a lot of theoretical thing about, you know, dividing cells would be better, it turned out non-dividing cells were, and the, the most accessible target of non-dividing cells really was the retina. And so, uh, hence the program that resulted in Spark Therapeutics and, and CHOP uh, developing Luxturna for uh, RPE65 deficiency, which is in fact itself the optimal retinal disorder because many retinal disorders cause death of photoreceptors, but that is a defect in uh, retinoid recycling. Uh, and so photoreceptors are still there, but not able to, to function, particularly in low light vision. I mean, th this is all history now, but at the time I was actually collaborating closely with uh, Sam Jacobson and Bill Houseworth and trying to use some of what we knew about the safety profiles of AAV to help move forward. And, and at one point, you know, Bill was collaborating with Gene and others on the correction of the RP65 dog and all that. So, uh, you know, our, some of our colleagues at Florida had, had a lot of important work there, but the, the point is that the field was persisting going where the vector might work. And there was another little caveat to this. You know, there was a point in time in the in the 90s when people were telling me drug companies, biopharma companies will never go after rare genetic diseases. These things have to be used in common diseases. Well, it turns out that putting a gene in works best for a single gene defect. <laughs> go figure. It's not the only thing it works for, but but so when you have a retinal 
uh, problem that is an autosomal recessive single gene disorder, it turned out it was the perfect fit for AAV. And so in retrospect, I think the Luxterna uh, approval, uh, which was the first one in, in the US and Glyberry had already worked for LPL deficiency in Europe with uh, intramuscular gene transfer. But the, anyway, the, the Spark uh, Luxterna product makes sense that it, it would work. Uh, and now AAV with that spurred on by that AAV's ability to transduce neurons, also non-dividing cells, and with the ones in the in the lower more neurons being most accessible, uh, you see spinal muscular atrophy, Zolgensma, being approved. The interesting thing about the AAV9 SMN1 uh, compared to the original, the first, uh, the Luxterna, the AV2 RP65 is that while it was certainly dramatic to see patients who were visually impaired regaining vision, to see babies with SMA1 be able to literally stand up and walk um, was transformative. Uh, I, I think we knew at that point there was no going back. Uh, you know, AAV was going to end up uh, being uh, a, a massively impactful platform for certain genetic conditions. Especially Zolgensma now, this is in many, many countries uh, um, being used, uh, correct? How many patients have been treated so far? I think it's a couple of thousand patients. Exactly. Roughly. Yeah. I don't have the exact number. Yeah. yeah. So this is- yeah, Someone been... told me 2000 patients altogether. Yeah. And then most recently for hemophilia B. So I think there's been a- AAV has again been very, very successful. Yes, indeed. AAV been approved now for hemophilia B, and there's also hemophilia A product approved in Europe, and more coming along all the time. Uh, and so the AAV approvals in, in particular have been uh, extremely gratifying to see. So where do you see that field with AAV going? And what are the remaining obstacles you think? I mean, what's, what's of next for AAV? And again, where do you see these the uh, obstacles? And well, maybe include your own research there too. Yeah. So, well, thank you for thank you for that. Well, I, I think that uh, when we look at where AAV has gone, I think for treating small populations of cells, it's it's going to be really uh, the current platform is going to work fine. Uh, for instance, in the retina and maybe lower motor neurons in the in the spinal cord. Where we, we're running into trouble is we're having to push the doses really quite high in order to get uh, distribution to larger targets, uh, like, uh, like the entire musculature, for instance, in muscular dystrophy. Although it can be done, it is um, at a point where there is a measurable levels of toxicity there. Uh, and same thing for global brain delivery. So we're at a point where we're trying to optimize getting the payload to the right cells when the individual disease process calls for it going to targets that have a total, a bigger, a larger total mass. So that challenges to, on the one hand, manufacturing, uh, scale up of manufacturing, but on the other hand, I think it, it really is a point where we need to work to improve potency of the vectors, meaning maybe the vectors have an enhanced tropism, or for some other reason, we can 
decrease the total protein load being delivered for the amount of effective uh, transducing viral uh, particles. That could be important, especially uh, for conditions like muscular dystrophies. I'm sure we're going to have some muscular dystrophies uh, where there are the current technology is 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 approvable. We're seeing uh, evidence of efficacy, but uh, it could be safer. It could be easier, and uh, I think that's that's definitely an issue. And then for global delivery to central nervous system, that continues to be a challenge. So um, you know, I think refinements of the technology is important. And then we still have to go back and see how can we harness the power of this platform potentially to hit uh, cells that are actively proliferating, which, which might bring to bear the combination of AAV and gene editing technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so in, our own, in our own work, we've been working on, um, I, this is an interesting twist in this. So we haven't talked about my my uh, little digression into leadership uh, in the Gene Therapy Center of Florida, then in the uh, the chair of pediatrics, and now as provost and dean. But I'll just, to talk about my own work, I'll just say that at a relatively advanced stage in my career, I've become more active as a trialist again, because some of our colleagues here at UMass, some of my, my good friends and colleagues who we helped to, uh, or we did, I shouldn't say helped, we recruited here, uh, Miguel Estevez, uh, Bob Brown and Heather Gray Edwards, they they pushed because they wanted us to do a trial here for Tay-Sachs and Sandhoff disease and said that they needed me to lead the trial because I uh, am a, am a, a pediatric uh, subspecialist. And uh, we've gotten into doing that. And that's become really rejuvenating for me in a lot of ways. And I'm really excited about that. And we are uh, ourselves right up against these problems of global gene delivery to uh, a human brain, even a even an infant human brain is a, it's a it's a large complex structure and it's a daunting task even to engineer the right uh, uh, delivery approach. Um, so um, so we're back in the in the thick of that that part right at the current time. I think that this is fascinating and I, I was just going to ask I mean you're wearing so many hats. I don't know how you do it. We'll get to this again, but but I did want to <laughs> I did want to uh, switch over to your other hat that you just mentioned as well. You are the dean and provost of UMass Chen Medical School. I mean, what inspired you to to you know, move along that administrative um, path? It's very interesting. Another kind of part of my uh, career path is, you know, I really started with running a lab like most of us and we were growing in our impact at at University of Florida. I was co-director with our um, dear friend who was recently passed away, Nick Musiska. I was Mm co-director at a point in time with the Gene Therapy Center there. We were joined very shortly after I got there by Barry Byrne, who is the director there now. But we were moving things along quite quite well in the Gene Therapy Center. And uh, at a certain point in time, I was asked to apply to be the chair of pediatrics. I had not had any significant administrative responsibility. Our Gene Therapy Center was really a, you know, an amalgamation uh, of, of colleagues who, who put in quite a few program project grants together and worked closely, but it really wasn't... Uh, we weren't doing heavy budgeting or any of that sort of stuff. 
But the reason I said yes to going back to a more a, a broader impact was really because of that that what I'd seen and, and experienced and kind of envisioned at Johns Hopkins as a as a young pediatric resident. The the fact that you know a, a pediatrics department could help train people that would maybe be mostly taking care of patients, but would be in an environment where the frontiers of science were being pushed forward to try to provide uh, solutions for patients who had conditions that we really couldn't treat effectively at the time. And I thought, wow, well, why shouldn't somebody who's oriented toward molecular medicine of the future really be, you know, kind of the person to lead clinicians and researchers and educators, and then also, you know, have those role, you know, those provide a role model for the for the learners and i think we we really got that department on that on that track uh and then you know becoming a provost and dean kind of evolved that uh, out of that and it's really kind of just an expansion beyond pediatrics but you know everything i've done in my individual career is based on trying to help patients whether it is through research or through direct patient care and really, that's what medical schools at their best are designed to do. But one of the things I learned is that to do that, you have to have these close-knit teams of people where, where you have clinicians and basic scientists working closely together. And that's kind of what we tried to do when I was in leadership, both at Florida and since I've been here at UMass. We, we've tried to bring together great groups of people uh, that include both those who understand the patients and the diseases and those who understand the basic biology and the vectors and the viruses upon which they're based. I think it's been effective here. You know, one of my biggest recruits, I mentioned Bob Brown in neurology, but the other, one of the other key recruits that we recruited here to help me get started on this medical school was Guangpeng Gao, another former ASGCT president. Uh, and Guangping has been a, a tremendous uh, partner and collaborator, uh, and uh, I, I highly value his partnership on an ongoing basis. And uh, between uh, he and myself, we, we, I think, helped to bring AAV here. UMass was already really on the map for the discovery of RNA interference by Craig Mello, which was just immediately preceded me coming here was when he got the Nobel Prize in 2006. Uh, and so there's been a, a huge focus here on siRNA technology mm -hmm. and gene editing now, but now we've kind of brought the gene therapy side together with that. But uh, in many, many, many other ways, uh, you know, I think many other departments, we, we've we've tried to foster an environment where we can cultivate faculty all the way up, or, or I should say people really all the way up from when there's their students, residents, fellows, young faculty, postdocs, so that they can use their talents. And, and my main job as, as dean is to recruit and retain the talented people uh, here and help them to develop. And that's, that's really what we, we've tried to do here. You know, I think that's been so critically important, and you have really done a wonderful job. I say critically important because it's obviously gotten also more difficult to get you know, NIH funding, and uh, so it's very important for especially junior 
our investigator and junior faculty to get the institutional support to continue a career. And what advice would you give now younger researchers or investigators really when they now come to you um, and looking for a fellowship or a faculty position? What, what do you tell them? A few things I, I tell them. I think first you have to start with something you really love doing that you're really passionate about because it's no matter what you choose to do in academic medicine or science, it's going to be hard and you're going to face many days of frustration and disappointment. So you have to have that burning desire in yourself to keep moving it forward. So, you know, you have to find something that you're passionate about and then you can set a goal doesn't have to be that far off in the future. I never set a goal of being a dean, by the way, or or even being a department chair for that matter. But my my goal has been to try to come up with with new treatments for patients that will really kind of uh, have a major impact on them. So uh, that's been my goal. But set that goal. But then make sure that you have both the time and resources. In, in wherever you're choosing to be that will give you time to focus on that. I've become later in my career more broad, but that whole period of time when I was at NIH and as a junior faculty at Hopkins, when I first went to Florida, I was really focused. And then after I kind of really established myself, that's when I was able uh, to get more broad. So focus, you know, find something you're passionate about, focus, and then, you know, just organize yourself in a way that you can have near-term and longer-term goals. You know, decide what what your next two two papers are going to be. Um, and, uh, and then the last thing I'll say for any scientists, <laughs> really important, listen to your data. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> We have uh, surprises all the time. You know, I, I'm continually being humbled by what I thought I knew and then what we find out we were wrong about, you know, and uh, you can go all the way back through all the history of AAV or all the history of different aspects of different diseases we've been involved with. And, uh, and yeah. I think, uh, you know, realizing we still have more to learn than what we know. Uh, it's it's a hard thing to do because sometimes when somebody gets an unexpected result, they view that as a big disappointment. But you know, as long as you've done the right controls, right, <laughs> it it can it can be a really important observation. Uh, so uh, anyway, I'm sure you know yeah. that. Sure you I know that. I, I the only thing I'd add is resilience. <laughs> <laughs> so. All of that takes resilience, right? <laughs> so, gonna, so, Terry, that's the point. <laughs> if you had a crystal ball, right? So, what do you think we're going to be in 10 years with all this gene therapy and gene editing in particular now? Any thoughts? Or where, do you, where would you want us to be in 10 years? Yeah. Well, um, there are two slightly different things. <laughs> okay. So where I think we're going to be, I certainly think we're going to have scores of gene therapies approved, uh, you know, in the United States and Europe and, and other developed countries, uh, and maybe, you know, some uh, uh, low and middle income countries even. Uh, the, the fact is that the technologies that we have now 
uh, do work and work at a level sufficient to treat many different uh, diseases. And I think just as we see the proliferation of monoclonal antibodies now, uh, you know, we'll see a, a parallel uh, a proliferation of gene therapies for specific conditions. And those will include various ones, including not just AV, of course, uh, 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 lentivirus vectors, uh, gene editing uh, technology delivered in various modalities, uh, ex vivo, uh, as it's already blossoming in immuno-oncology in various areas. The, the, it'll be, it'll be, uh, they'll be spread across the areas that we would see represented at the ASGCT annual meeting. Uh, I'm really hopeful that we'll begin to crack the nut on a few other higher prevalence conditions. Uh, one thing I didn't mention is uh, uh, my mother had uh, died of Alzheimer's disease. Mm, yes, uh, yes. Ter terrible condition. Yeah. Uh, We've got vectors that get genes into the brain reasonably well. And uh, if we knew exactly what to deliver, uh, you know, that might be a, a terrific one to see fall uh, uh, into the category of, of, of somewhat treatable. Yeah. Now, uh, along the same lines. So he asked what I would want to see. Well, I, I'm going to relate back. I did not choose when I was a pediatrician at Hopkins or pediatric resident at Hopkins, I did not choose to do pediatric genetics, even though I've worked on genetic diseases. And one of the reasons was somebody told me, and they, at the time, I think were right, that, um, you know, when you work on genetics, you can learn a lot about a disease, but you can't do anything about it. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I was told to me like in 1980s, or 87. So it was true in 1986 or 87. But, uh, you know, where, where I sit right now, because we are involved in, in pediatric genetic diseases, is that, is that families are contacting us all the time and saying, I have this other genetic disease. I see what's happened for SMA1, what, uh, you know, what has come forward and, being, and has been approved. Uh, why can't we use this for my my child's disease? Mm -hmm. Right, and uh, and of course, you know the ASGCT is very good at pointing this out. I mean, there's somewhere between seven and ten thousand rare diseases or rare genetic diseases, and uh, I would love to see us be able to continue to spread out across many, many more uh, of these ultra rare. Um, uh, genetic conditions, because this population uh, of people really, uh, they are people we have, we have used as a scientific community to learn about genetics and to learn about uh, molecular pathways. Uh, and I think we, we owe it to them to put some of that science back into those communities um, so it continues to be a disappointment for some conditions. We can say there's a treatment for others. We just, it's not still not here yet. Yeah, no, I totally agree, Terry. One last question I have for you. What do you do in your free time? Is there any free time with so oh, many yeah. hats you're wearing? <laughs> well, several things. Sports <laughs> fans, um, my wife and I have season tickets to the uh, Woo Sox, which is the Worcester Red Sox, the Triple H franchise of the, of the Red Sox. This year, I think the Woo Sox may actually end up being better than their Boston colleagues. <laughs> I don't want to get hate mail. 
from them. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, the other thing I like is I I have to confess that I um, I love obscure um, sci-fi. Uh, I will sometimes sequester myself uh, with uh, with the remote, and also I do occasionally kind of look at uh, unusual. Uh, divergent uh, uh, foreign language films on the Criterion uh, network. And uh, I like uh, I like kind of weird dystopian uh, uh, future uh, types of movies. I don't know why, uh, but uh, I don't like superhero movies, but I like uh, sci-fi movies. So there you go. Okay. Oh, thank you so much. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Terry. I really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, thanks for all you do. Um, thank you. Well, thank you so much, Hans-Peter. You, you've been a, a, a great president for our society. And, uh, you know, I, I love seeing you with your, um, I don't know if other people are going to be able to see your background. I, lo- I, love, be, I love seeing your background with, the, with Seattle and Mount Rainier, because <laughs> that is the birthplace of the ASGCT. That's right. Yes. We didn't know that. Uh, yes. I have fond uh, memories of times I've spent, times I've visited Seattle and love to visit, visit it again soon, hopefully uh, for future ASGCTs at, at different times. Yes, I hope so. Okay. Really appreciate it, Terry. All right. Take okay. care. <laughs>